Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production between the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. My name is Mark Bonica, and I am an assistant professor in the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy. The following panel discussion was recorded as a live event co-sponsored by the Department of Health Management and Policy at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives, the local chapter of the American College of Healthcare Executives. The event featured here occurred on December 11th, 2020, during the COVID-19 pandemic, which is why the event was virtual and not in person. In order of appearance, we were lucky to be joined by Eileen Keefe, the Chief Nursing Officer for Parkland Medical Center in Derry, New Hampshire, Carol Majewski, Associate Chief Quality Officer for Patient Experience for the Dartmouth-Hitchcock Health System, and Colonel Kim Aiello, the Commander of the 44th Medical Brigade, Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Each of our speakers addressed their personal experiences with leading through the early months of the COVID-19 pandemic and specifically how the pandemic affected manpower resources. Welcome, everybody. I am uh, really excited to, to have you here. Um, thanks to the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives for your longtime support of uh, health management and policy, our, our department here. Um, fall programming is normally in person and the students get so much out of meeting the NNHE members at our Shaping the Future event and at the NNHE annual meeting and it is really an important part of their socialization to the field and while I wish we could be in person today I am still grateful for the support of NNHE in sponsoring today's panel and our panel is COVID-19 what we learned staffing slash people resources and that's a uh, very appropriate for our uh, given our circumstances, since we all know uh, staffing is more than half of the operating cost of most healthcare organizations. Um, learning how to uh, uh, work with our teams during this crisis is a really core uh, question, and I'm, I'm excited that we're going to have some really amazing people to talk to you uh, from different viewpoints, uh, from different parts of the industry. And so uh, to introduce very quickly our panel, uh, in order of presentation, we will be hearing from Eileen Keefe, the Chief Nursing Officer for Parkland Medical Center in Derry, New Hampshire. Carol Majewski, Associate Chief Quality Officer for Patient Experience for the Dartmouth-Hitchcock System, and she served as the Incident Commander for the Dartmouth-Hitchcock System, and Colonel Kim Aiello, who most recently served as the Commander of the 44th Medical Brigade at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, where she deployed in support of COVID-19, of the COVID-19 response to FEMA regions one through four and five, and led the Javits New York uh, City Medical Station DOD mission. So uh, for today's format, each of the panelists has prepared comments uh, of about 15 minutes in length. So we're going to let each of them speak. And then when they have, uh, have completed their presentations, we'll open it up for a general Q&A. Uh, so I would ask that you jot down your questions as they go along, and then uh, we'll have that open Q&A at the end in the last half hour of the session. Uh, feel free to use the chat uh, function to ask your questions. Uh, I'll be monitoring the chat uh, and passing those along um, and or uh, use the raise hand function and I will call on you so you can uh, ask your question uh, verbally. Uh, just a reminder for ACHE members uh, that you have to stay logged on for at least 60 minutes in order to receive credit. So if you run into connectivity issues, please let me know or my, myself or Chris know uh, and we'll help you out with that. So, um, so without uh, further ado, let me turn over uh, the controls to our first speaker, which is going to be uh, Eileen Keefe. So Eileen. Thank you, Professor Bonica. I'm gonna share uh, my presentation. Are you seeing that? Uh, Eileen, we've got the, um, uh, I think we've got it flipped again. Okay. We can see it, we can see it, but we see the notes. Hmm. 
Is that better? That's it. Okay. So thanks. Um, you know, it, it's great to be a part of this panel. Um, and those introductions are so helpful, Mark, to have an understanding of where my my acute care community experience fits in with others. Um, just a lot, a lot to talk through, and I, I'll I'll keep my remarks within the 15 minutes. Um, when this first evolved, I, I will say this: um, the first thing we did was was limit contact to visitors and students. And <clears throat> I remember feeling sort of agonized about that because I knew what was going on um, at places like UNH and elsewhere, where the health leaders of the future. Um, I felt we're going to miss a huge opportunity to understand um, something that would occur only once in <clears throat> my lifetime, I hope. But uh, so again, I appreciate you putting this panel together. So, you know, a little bit about our, our story. Um, as I mentioned, we're an acute care hospital, community hospital in Derry, which is a population of over 120,000 at this point. We are an 86-bed licensed hospital. We have full-service ER. We have behavioral health, 24-7 uh, PCI and robotics, and, and the whole gamut of services in a community setting. We like to say we're a growing community hospital because this is really just a, a growing community. Um, when you talk about Parkland, it's hard to not also reference our parent company, HCA. So we have all the benefits of a community hospital sitting in this community of Derry, but also the benefits of being part of a large corporate entity, which um, HCA um, actually is one of the nation's leading healthcare providers, delivering about 5% of the care throughout the country, over 2000 sites of care. I will say a very data rich and operationally adept um, organization. And that's not a small thing given our scale. So. Um, lots of learning comes out of this system um, by use of data, sharing best practices. And really this pandemic was such an opportunity for us to mobilize and share. And we, we benefited from partnering with our state colleagues, but also with our HCA colleagues, uh, Portsmouth and Frisbee through this. So it's hard to talk about this and not, you know, just go right to the chart. Um, I, I will confess, January and February, I had no idea what, what was upon us. Um, we, we saw this thing in China and we wondered. Um, really, situational awareness began developing that we had an evolving outbreak and there was some preparedness exercises. I actually had the benefit of being in Nashville, our corporate headquarters, in February. And I was in their situation room and sort of blown away by the number of computers, monitors, and the incident command structure they had set up. That was my first introduction to the Hopkins website and how they were tracking each case around the US and it looked small. And I got to zoom in there on our eight bed, eight bed ICU and, and it, it proved to be um, pretty prescient for me as time went on. And I'll talk a little bit about that. But in March, we set up our incident command system and that really is, is how we ran our operations. And it, it started with once a day incident command meetings and we did it daily because we were driving and executing every day and then we added twice a day incident command meetings so everything stopped and we went into full-on staffing and surge planning modes um, and as we did this just like the others on this panel i'm sure you guys are referring to the the charts and the algorithms and the models um, where at one point our icu of eight beds was projected to have 56 patients and we were tasked with building that out and being creative with how we were going to staff it. And I'm going to talk more about that. Um, and then just as we got that underway, we started to ask ourselves, you know, can we walk and chew gum at the same time? There are patients out in this community that are waiting for um, what's considered elective care, um, whether these are cancer diagnoses um, or important um, surgeries that we said, we have to figure out how we're gonna do both these things at once. I'll talk a little bit about how we did that as well. It really was relying on us developing robust algorithms for testing. And I think the most important thing we did with our incident command structure was, was pull in um, heavily our medical staff. So most of our medical staff are not quote employed um, by our system, but they are collaborators and their medical staff leaders in our system. So. I credit our CEO who had been in the job about a week before we set up incident command 
with pulling in these service line leaders, um, it would have been very easy for the docs to look to us and to prescribe to us as administrators how they wanted us to run the operations. But we pulled them in intentionally to help guide that. And it was extremely valuable for us and remains so. You know, and, and fast forward to July where um, for us, we peaked. Um, I, I felt like I was in Massachusetts because honestly, we we had um, 3% of the state's beds, but we actually had about 20% of the, of the COVID hospitalization. So I would look across the market at Frisbee and Portsmouth um, with envy, but I also felt good because I knew we were managing it. And once those first cases came, we all could exhale because we got through it. Um, and just like others spent the fall, just honing our processes around protection. I'll talk a little bit about that. And this morning had a, a call on our vaccination clinics, which will start next week. Um, I'm really excited. I plan to get out there and vaccinate myself. Um, again, this is this is the exit ramp uh, to this pandemic for us. So very excited about that. So I think what you wanna hear about is staffing and resources. Um, you know, early on, as, as we all watch these predictive models escalate, um, people stayed home. Uh, we don't know what happened to the chest pains, the strokes, uh, the MIs, but people didn't show up in our ER. So an average daily census of 65 turned to 30. Um, and, and that was pretty precipitous. Um, surgery and endo cases canceled. Obviously, we closed those for a short time because we felt those spaces were going to be part of our surge plans. Um, and I think the biggest thing we did right then and there was, was cease the use of all of our PR and labor which was the hardest thing we had to do in this pandemic. We had, um, we had to staff to volume. We've always been an organization that knew how to staff to volume, um, you know, and, and, and being able to model an ER that, you, that usually sees 65 to 70 down to 25 to 30 and make those staff not only feel safe because they were facing something they weren't sure they were gonna be able to manage, but do it with half the team was very difficult. I'll talk a little bit about some of the ways we did that. Um, and so when you stop using your PRNs, you got to redeploy all those other people that expect to be getting their hours. Our goal was to not lay off or furlough one staff member. Um, and that, that wasn't just our goal, that was a corporate goal. And um, HCA was extremely successful in doing that, but we did it um, through daily, it felt like hourly at times, resource management pools where we were looking at, you know, a full-time OR nurse who's not in surgery, what's she gonna do? Where's she gonna get her hours and how's she gonna support our teams? We did that all day, every day. Um, we also had quarantine pay. And as I'm sure you all understand, early on in the epidemic, it was hard to know who was sick, how to manage sick people, how to quarantine people. Um, we spent a lot of time, um, almost equal time, setting up our employee health processes as we did setting up our patient care processes. And um, I'm proud to say the last case of us hospital associated um, that we could identify transmission was in May. Um, so I think that the protections we've put in place have been very, very effective. So I talked about the resource pool. I talked about frequent staffing huddles um, and redeployment support, right? So for an OR nurse who hasn't worked in the ICU in eight years, how am I going to how am I going to get her to be an extender for an ICU nurse to manage four to six patients apiece? Um, we had a lot of support with that. We um, HCA was putting out just in time education, QR code scanning for you know when was the last time you used high flow O2? Here's how you do it. Those one pagers were extremely helpful. We developed what we called the waterfall staffing plan, and um, we did it on the nursing side and we did it on the provider side. And as the models changed, we changed our staffing plan. I think one of the most critical things we did early on was, was look at our OR team, look at our central sterile and scrub techs, put them right away into roles. Um, the PPEs are was a role we set up uh, within about an hour and a half on a Saturday morning in March, where we said, we got to control PPE, we got to make staff feel comfortable about the access and ability to get PPE. And so the czar role was formed. And, our central sterile staff were the and scrub techs were, were great at that role. Um, they did a little bit of decontamination of things like paper shields, but mostly they went around to the units and they made sure people could don and doff successfully 
And if you needed an N95, you, you ping them any time of the day or night, and they'd come to you um, and get you a new N95. So that role is still in place, as well as staff screeners. And when we think about uh, using staff to their full capacity, these roles were incredibly powerful for that. I mentioned virtual orientation because um, onboarding new staff amidst this pandemic has been difficult. We went purely virtual and while it's been a, a, a game changer and I think our staff have adjusted to it, as leaders, I have a hard time with it because I like to know who's in the facility and have an opportunity to meet these folks, um, but we're doing that out on the unit. So that's been another important way for us to manage. You know, I've mentioned a couple of these concepts already, um, contact tracing, employee health. That was so, so important. I, I, I remember some difficult calls with respiratory therapists early on in this pandemic when they worried they'd been exposed. And we, we, all, we all committed to ourselves as a leadership team um, that, that we were going to use the best guidance we had in front of us, which was the CDC guidance and the HCA guidance that came along with that and really making sure staff understood that their safety was our number one concern. Um, you know, as administrators, sometimes staff think that I'm concerned about volumes and, and staffing and productivity, and I am, but being out there on the teams on the floor with them, I would round with our infection preventionists at least three times a day, and I needed them to see me, and I wanted them to ask me the hard questions. Um, and the hard questions were, where's the rest of our ER staff? There's only four of us here today. How are we going to run a code? And I would respond with, you know what? You're seeing 25 patients a week. Here's your backup plan. What are other ideas do you have? Um, we've always been a really transparent and highly visible leadership team. And honestly, we just did more and more of that while, while this unfolded. We had a survey um, that was live called the COVID-19 Pulse uh, staff could take it as many times as they wanted, but every couple days we'd look at the comments in there. We'd look at what felt staff felt they needed or were getting for support. And honestly, this feels pretty good. Uh, 74%, 77 and 70 around key areas of feeling supported, having the training you needed and feeling that communication was good. So this remains um, an avenue for us, continuing to take pulse checks with our teams, be highly visible. I do want to recognize um, we, we actually took a time out in September and had, a, I, I called it the COVID funeral, but I think it was more like a wake where we said to people, let's, let's get your stories together because I want to hear what you went through, um, nurses, doctors, others. Um, we became family members to patients. We became the only people they had when they were in the hospital. And we all became very close as a leadership team and as a clinical team despite the fact that we couldn't be together. We were always behind PPE together, but um, we did this thing, I called it jokingly the COVID Chronicles, but I got more feedback about that two hour session we held where we shared videos, we shared stories, we shared um, some of what folks had been through and it was an unbelievable experience for us to process. And I know we're not done yet, but that stopping point um, was important for us to reflect as a as a organization on what we had accomplished together. And, and I think building culture, that's constantly what we're trying to do is, is be authentic in our leadership, recognize when people are struggling, and be okay and, and not run from the hard questions. And that was a that was a great opportunity for us. Um, we did twice daily huddles on the units, 7 a.m. and 7 p.m where uh, the nursing directors didn't, they were always there or they'd cover each other. Um, we, we, there was so much to talk about all the time and, and keeping people up to speed on the latest evidence was really important. We had COVID binders on every unit. We did weekly social media interviews with key actors um, reinforcing our communication. And um, I think it served us extremely well. Um, and I've already mentioned access to resources, lots of data, lots of modeling, and the ability to use the clinical and educational resources that HCA was creating. I didn't have to write, uh, you know, the the vent training for for the PACU nurse. It was right there; they could download it on their phones. That was extremely helpful. Um, you know, I've talked about some of these lessons already. I, you know, I think the foundation that we started this pandemic with was a good one. 
um, being being a visible um, leadership team, being really transparent. Our staff know how we come up with their staffing grids and and how those change and why those change. Um, and so we did more and more of that communicating, executing quickly. You know what I learned, and we joke about this is we can get stuff done, and boy, we can get stuff done fast. So that's something that we have continued to to leverage um, moving forward. And I just included here a, a snapshot from one of the situational reports. We'd send these out once or twice a week as needed so that our staff had all the information we had about what was going on and what were we doing to prepare ourselves as an organization. Um, community uh, input was amazing, like you all um, saw over, over, the, over the course of this pandemic, the outpouring of support, food, love, cards, um, People who couldn't visit were writing letters, um, students, um, spiritual care folks that we've aligned with. It was incredibly um, heartwarming to get the support from the community. And, and we still share most of this, most of these all the time around our units. Um, and and that's really that's really it for me. I want to say thank you again for letting me letting me share our story. Thank you, Eileen. That, that was great. Um, so next up, we're going to hear from Carol and her experiences at uh, at Dartmouth. All right, can you see the slides? They're, they're good. And you can hear me. Whoops, I've already kind of gone ahead there. Uh, let me hit that face. All right, so uh, good morning, everybody. Um, as Mark shared, uh, my name is Carol Majewski and I'm from Dartmouth-Hitchcock. I lead our Office of Patient Experience. But in talking with you today, I'm talking as the incident commander. I'm one of 12 people within the organization that has been uh, trained to lead uh, incidents when uh, when they occur, and fortunately, they're few and far between. So, as I was preparing this uh, presentation, uh, well, wait a minute. I, let me let me step back and tell you a little bit about Dartmouth Hitchcock. We are the uh, only academic medical center in New Hampshire. We deliver coordinary care. We're also a system. We're comprised of uh, three critical access hospitals. We have a community hospital, and we have the visiting nurse and hospice for both New Vermont and New Hampshire. Uh, total employees within Dartmouth-Hitchcock are 10,000. When you add in our system members, we get to 13,000. And this was our first incident command activation as a system. So while we led the work on the Lebanon campus and within Dartmouth-Hitchcock, each system member also activated their incident command structure and we cascaded information back and forth. And very much like Eileen shared, I think you'll see a lot of parallels to the work that we did um, we had an incredible team as part of our incident command. We had epidemiologists and infection preventionists, our inventory and logistics, uh, communications and marketing, employee safety, finance, emergency management. We also partnered with the college um, at Dartmouth to do some of this work and worked with uh, our community resources as well. So as I was thinking about this panel discussion and the, and the magnitude of COVID, I said, how could I frame this and, and kind of capture some key takeaways? And uh, I had actually coined this phrase when I was talking with uh, Dartmouth College students. If culture eats strategy for lunch, fear eats everything else for dinner. And I said, I just can't talk about what we did and how we did it, because you'd see a lot of similarities. Eileen and I would have had very comparable presentations um, because we used a lot of the same tactics. But I thought as leaders, it's important to address what people were feeling. And for many people, it was fear. So on March 2nd, we activated our incident command and we actually had two triggers for that. One, we had the first case in New Hampshire and unfortunately it was a Dartmouth-Hitchcock employee. And as we did some of that contact tracing, uh, we learned that the estimated close contacts exceeded 50 people. And uh, all of those people needed to be contacted, quarantined, educated, monitored, and a return to work plan. Now, fortunately for us, none of those 50 were patients. So that was the good part, but they were all employees. 
at various levels in the organization. So suddenly COVID became very real, very fast in the upper, upper valley. And there were fears of an outbreak. We had employees worried, our community was worried. Um, and there wasn't a lot of information on March 2nd. You know, we were still working through it. And the other trigger was we needed to start that proactive planning that everybody else was doing. We needed to look at what was going on in our country, in the world. We saw the images of what was going on in healthcare um, and we needed to create a plan. So what did we do? For the outbreak side of things, we had to immediately educate our potentially exposed employees as to what is COVID? What are the symptoms? What do you need to do to monitor? What are the quarantine do's and don'ts? When can you return to work? How will you come about returning to work? How do you manage that time away? What does this look like for your benefits and things like that? What about family impacts? Can your wife or spouse go to work or your children go to school? Our HR and Ahmed teams were working round the clock. We had to rapidly develop a staffing plan to cover all of those quarantined employees for 14 days. We had to reassure current employee patients that they weren't exposed, communicate with employees, give them the facts, set up a hotline in Ahmed, and communicate with our community. So things happened very quickly. As we started planning the more proactive approach, we had to review and update our search plans. And I just say kudos to the Ebola ICS team because they did some great work that allowed us to kind of accelerate our work. We had to establish testing and results reporting, which we thought would be important in our region. Working on aligning our system, aligning the surge plans, aligning testing, inventory and logistics. Would we have COVID and non-COVID sites? We coordinated information sharing with the community, state and public health, and we had to plan for an interruption in service. So I can't speak enough to the incredible work done by our marketing and communications team because they were critical to our efforts to address fears with facts and to convey compassion and comparing and, and caring to our employees and to the patients in the community. So a week later, needless to say, some of those exposed employees tested positive. So now we had to put more employees on quarantine and fears escalated even higher. Question became, will we have the resources we need to when we need them? And of course that was promulgated by all of the images on TV of, of people in other countries wearing garbage bags, lacking masks and things like that. So in order to address those fears, we knew we needed to get the data, share the data, and we had to make some difficult decisions. So our most critical resource is people. And they had some key fears, they had competency fears. So we had a high threat infection team prepared to take care of, of patients that was developed with Ebola, but those were insufficient resources when you started looking at COVID volumes. So we needed a lot more people prepared to care for COVID patients and a plan to ensure their competency. We deployed our quality team on PPE training and over five to six weeks trained close to 4,000 employees in appropriate PPE care for uh, use for COVID patients. There were exposure fears. People were very worried about getting COVID. And we saw that because we had over a hundred requests sent to HR for accommodations that would release people from the obligation to care for COVID-19 patients or to be in the clinical care environment. We really believed that our PPE and the tactics we had put in place would keep people safe. So we actually uh, executed very few accommodations. We, we told people you will be caring for patients, but we focused on communicating facts. We too had fears around employment. As we ramped down the elective services to conserve PPE and prevent transmission, we had employees working from home and employees without work to do. And our senior leaders too made the decision, no furloughs, no layoffs, and we wanted to keep our employees whole. And I'm sure our CFO and others had a lot of fears with that decision, okay? Um, in addition to work from home tombs, we had innumerable policy changes and updates that needed to be made. But what we did, similar to what I leaned, is we had Staff Match. And Staff Match was a program we created to pair people who wanted and needed to work with jobs that needed doing. And there was a lot that needed to be done. We needed to staff our hotlines. We needed to staff our testing site, door screening. We created virtual visit program for, for inpatients. We developed reprocessing on site for, for masks and our shields and all. There was PPE training and inventory and logistics distribution. So we worked really hard to find meaningful work for those displaced employees. The other critical resource that created a lot of fear, of course, was PPE. Now, interestingly, as a system, we could not easily tell you what we had and how much we had. 
across our system. It, we learned that there were different names for the same products at different sites, which made it really confusing to, to really organize. We also didn't know what we would need for COVID patient care. How many would we need per day for one patient? Um, and products were unavailable and very highly priced. So our team was out there looking to get their hands on anything um, and we were paying astronomical fees for it. So we uh, essentially, we limited our hours and our procedural areas to emergent and urgent cases. And we studied the utilization of PPE in those areas, both uh, in our clinical areas and with COVID cases so we developed a PPE projection calculator for use. If we had so many COVID patients and we were doing so many surgical patients, this is what we could expect to use. And this is what we would need going forward. We also created a scorecard and we had the PPE by product name, by site name. It was linked to COVID case volumes and OR volumes. Our scorecard also included staffing resources and, and sick calls. We were tracking that. COVID cases, COVID testing we were doing, what was going on in both New Hampshire and Vermont hospitals because we serve both, uh, both states with our patient volumes. We were tracking ventilators used, uh, critical care patients, and of course, the death tolls. This didn't eliminate fear, but it allowed us to take some deep breaths to be able to say we're okay today, we're okay maybe this week and next week, and it gave us a small sense of control in a world that felt very out of control. We were still worried about a lot of other resources like ventilators and beds, like capacity when we set up an alternate care site. But one of the biggest fears we had is what if? What if with all of this, we can't care for everyone? What if we don't have the staffing or the vents or the beds or the medications? And a senior leader came to me and she said, I'm gonna to bring together the ethics panel and work on our crisis standards of care. And if we needed to make those tough decisions, how would those decisions be made? By whom? When would this be triggered? In all my years of healthcare, I never imagined thinking of these things. And that fear kept me up at night. So when we think about the experience of fear, it didn't diminish because of the nonstop news stories. I mean, you couldn't look anywhere without the media cover, hospitals that were laying off people, daily tallies of infected and dying, healthcare workers, uh, New York City overrun and overwhelmed, morgue trailers, images that will haunt all of us for years to come. Conflicting with that, we had a president who was saying it will go away. One day like a miracle, it will be gone over by this Easter. So I have to imagine there were fears in the White House of what this would do to the economy, the stock market, to jobs, national sense of security. And of course it was an election year. But that conflicting information all contributed to greater anxiety and fears for many. So the result was we had conflicting messages on COVID, on best practices, on evidences for masks and other measures. And one way this showed up at Dartmouth was this practice variation. We had some staff following the PPE guidelines. We had others less worried, so they were not necessarily being as rigid with their PPE. And we had other staff that had actually over PPE'd. Whatever we said to wear, they wore more. We needed everyone on the same page because variation created angst and fear for our patients. And we saw this in the calls and letters that came to patient relations and to our CEO, were we really role modeling what was safe? So once again, the importance of our communications can't be overstated. We were cascading daily messages to leaders, what to reinforce, what to cascade, what to escalate, but importantly, the importance of listening with compassion and caring. We knew too that outside of work, employees faced uncertainty as to when schools and businesses would be reopened. We awaited guidance from the state. Now at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, we have employees from the state of Vermont, Massachusetts, Maine, and New Hampshire. And all of those states were offering different guidance on testing, on traveling, on quarantines, and, and trying to manage that in HR policies and, and work policies was a real, real work. We also needed, we too needed to reopen our doors for chronic care, we had hospitalized patients longing to see their families and all. And as we began to create those plans, we realized that fears were escalating because staff had actually begun to feel safe in a lockdown situation. And when we started talking about bringing more people through the doors, they got anxious again. So we had shut down quickly, but we had to reopen thoughtfully. We needed to bring in the right staff. We needed to rethink care spaces, waiting rooms, eating areas staff parking, shuttle buses, all of these things that we take for granted, we had to rethink. 
There was a lot of anxiety and fear about it. So we were sending messages to staff before they returned to talk about these things. What do you need to know about screening and walking through the doors? What do you need to know about PPE? Our goal was that they felt safe, that they felt able to raise concerns, and that they had the data and the facts that they needed. We also messaged to our patients and communities. We did a four-part series. We are open and we are safe. We engaged our physician leaders in epidemiology in our children's hospital and cancer center to talk about our efforts and what was being done to keep our patients safe. We used print media, social media, radio, any way we could reach out and reassure people we did. On the positive side, we had staff on site caring for all of our patients without patient exposures. Uh, we had patients returning for appointments and procedures. We were optimally using and being reimbursed for our telemedicine technologies with a lot of satisfied patients. And we had very reliable forecasting tools. We also had hope. Summer weather was beginning, outside activities were going on. It was safer to be around people. There was outdoor dining. Thank goodness the hair salons opened. Uh, there were uh, home projects to do, yard work, and there was work on a vaccine. On June 9th, we marked the 100th day of our incident command. And in just 100 days, we went from two US deaths to 110,500. Our fears were now future facing. Employees continued over to worry about summer. Would they have vacation? What about daycare and summer camps for children? Would we have staffing? What was gonna happen with school for fall? When might the remote teams be able to come back? People were also managing friends, neighbors, and families that had lost jobs, food insecurities, that couldn't pay rent, mortgages, uh, even losses to COVID. And of course, there was the question, when would the vaccine arrive and what would the fall bring? Oh, I'm not quite sure why we don't have a little phrase up there. There it goes, okay. Well, here we are today, it is late fall. And as predicted by the science and epidemiologists, we have COVID and it is spreading rapidly with daily death rates breaking records one after another. We do have a vaccine on the way, but we also have pandemic fatigue. Many people are holding on by a thread to the end of their rope. We have, we have um, mental health challenges and domestic violence issues. We have heightened inpatient acuity and the early gratitude for healthcare workers has dwindled a bit with the exhaustion that everyone is feeling. It's December 11th, 284 days after we activated our incident command and we are closing in on 300,000 deaths. Now our incident command paused late this summer and we have not been reactivated. Our operations team is very effectively managing our new normal. We're running at full capacity, our inpatient uh, beds, our ORs and procedural areas and our appointments. We're actively still using our forecasting tools for both our COVID demand, our PPE use, and our inventory. And we're closely watching the numbers rise in our region. Our challenges right now are likely to be staffing resources, possibly capacity, and definitely pandemic fatigue. Are our staff, patients, and community still afraid? Yes, but I think they're more appropriately afraid because we now have confidence in the testing, efficacy, and inventory of our PPE and our ability to clinically deliver great care for COVID positive patients. And as I reflected on our work, I said, we had to manage and face fear. We had to rein in our own fears and we had to understand and compassionately respond to the fears of our employees, their families, of our patients and our communities. We had to, helpfully, we had to help our staff confidently overcome their fears of COVID and trust in the PPE and our decisions for their safety. We had to make difficult decisions that directly impacted our financial viability and trust that if you take care of your people, they will be there for you. We had to help our patients and families overcome their fears to receive care and trust we would keep them safe and informed. And we had to lead by example and share knowledge with our community to counter misinformation and offer evidence and science and facts to guide their decisions and actions. As the incident commander, I would readily tell you there were days I was afraid of what might come. As a team, we felt confident we had the material resources we need. Our staff was educated and competent. We were providing safe care in a safe environment. But our collective future depended on our ability to engage our staff, our colleagues, our patients and community with evidence, science, and facts, and importantly, with care and compassion. So I would share, fear is powerful, but high doses of, of care and compassion are effective antidotes.
Thank you, Carol. That, that's fantastic. I love uh, I love your your um, uh, new contribution to Harvard Business School uh, uh, series. <laughs> everything else for dinner. Uh, I'm going to definitely keep that one. Uh, so thank you. Uh, let me uh, tee up uh, Kim's slides here, and um, I'm going to draw. I'm going to do the slides for Kim. Great. Thanks, Mark. So I'll, I'll just get started while you bring this slides up. My name is Colonel Kim Aiello, and I am currently in the Army, and I had the opportunity and privilege to command what's called the 44th Medical Brigade. And uh, more or less, what I'm going to go through today is going to be really what our journey was, um, lessons learned, and one of the key things that we always spoke to is that we're in this together. Each of my uh, colleagues has spoke to their perspective. So if you take each of their perspective and then add what I'm going to speak to, that really demonstrates what our story is about, because we were doing the same things they were, but now add on um, kind of what our perspective and, and what I'm going to speak to. So the 44th Med Brigade, um, this is a picture as we were getting ready to fly out. There were four of us that were authorized to go. I was told on a Tuesday at uh, 1500, which was 3 p.m., and I was told to be ready by 11 o'clock the next day. A couple of questions I always ask when I'm getting ready for a mission. What's my mission? What's my task organization mean? What units are to my left and my right? What units do I have underneath me? And who am I reporting to? And who is my enemy? And they said, Kim, you're going to New York. I don't know what your mission's going to be. We don't know what soldiers and support you're going to have. And we even don't, don't know where you're going to stay. So figure it out. We're going to fly you in and you're going to figure it out. Got it. And you can take four people to include yourself. Understand I have a 100 person staff and I have a 2500 formation normally back here at Fort Bragg as well as four other states. They said you get four seats on a plane. Um, so huge mission. I did know another hospital center was going to be going out of Fort Bragg. That's them planning on a plane as they're flying into New York City. And then we came together, and this is a small group to the right that we started uh, calling ourselves Task Force Silver Dragons. Um, and if you go to the next slide, I'll talk a little bit about our mission. So typically when we are deploying... We deploy overseas to support the warfighter. So we provide what's called force health protection. That's role three, your hospitalization. Role two, think of your clinic, uh, pharmacy, lab, x-ray, medical logistics, combat stress, vet, PM, I, preventive medicine. I have that in my formation. In this mission, it was just my headquarters and one of my what's called role threes that was placed on it, which is a 148-bed hospital. Um, so we knew that this mission was going to be a little bit different. So if we just, I'm not going to go into this timeline in great detail, but you clearly can see POTUS declared, so that's President of the United States, declared an emergency on 13 March. I was notified on the 24th. By the 25th, I'm on the ground, myself and three of my folks, that um, one of my hospitals was able to come in, and then the other one I talked about at Fort Bragg. So at that point, I thought I had about a 500-person uh, formation. We were told when I hit the ground, um, understand I was flown in to New Jersey. I was told, called someone I knew. He said, get yourself to New York City. I said, how? That's an hour and a half away. He said, figure it out, Colonel. Um, I asked someone in the street to drive us to New York City, as crazy it is, um, with all of our bags. And thankfully, the individual did it. I showed up at a hotel and he said, we're going to the Javits. Um, you're going to work for me now. He was a two, he's a two-star. Got it. I said, what's the Javits? He said, I don't know. Uh, we're being told it's on this street. It's a convention center. So when we got to the Javits, we were told that we were going to be establishing a, um, a shelter, a medical shelter non-COVID medical shelter. So we were told that it had to be established by the 31st of March, understanding that I had people flying in until the 28th. So I had five days to set up what was called a medical shelter. I'll speak to that in a moment. Um, by the 3rd of April, we actually had our first um, well, I say 31st of March, we had our first patient. Notice I don't write COVID because we were told we would not see COVID patients, um, in part because we have to be able to deploy at any time. And if they were worried about our readiness, because it was a concern for our nation that what we were going through, we were actually very vulnerable as a nation on attacks. Think Russia, think China. So they wanted to make sure that we were protected, that in the event we had to pull out and we had to deploy overseas, that we were prepared to do so and we stayed healthy. We knew if we didn't have a COVID facility, it wasn't going to be successful. Um, 
So in time, we actually changed and we had what's called the change of mission on 2 April. And I was told you will become a COVID facility and really had about um, 90 minutes to come up with that plan. By the 3rd of April, we had our first COVID-19 patient. And then in time, my mission grew and I started um, assuming other regions. Region two, which is New Jersey, four locations. Uh, Then we started putting personnel into New York City hospitals, i.e. medical personnel in the New York City hospitals, 10 of them. We then assume region one, which is Massachusetts, Boston, and Tewksbury, as well as Connecticut. And then we also um, start assuming region three in Pennsylvania. We had three locations and region five um, or six, I should say, in Louisiana. So in the end, we were actually supporting 22 sites, 17 different locations, six states, five FEMA regions. We grew to 3,000 personnel in our task force. And what we did is we established what's called a fully equipped alternate care facility. That was the Javits New York Medical Station, where we went up to the ability to care for 2,500 COVID-19 patients. We also then did 18 hospitals, which are both embedded and extended, uh, extended really care facilities. And the embedded is where we sent our medical personnel and the hospital, like those just speak, spoke, they, they decide where they're going to work and what mission they're going to have and what their hours are going to be. Um, but then we had um, examples like you could see in Connecticut, where we actually were given a ward and the hospital said, I'm going to give you this ward. I need you to run it. It will be COVID and you're going to completely staff it, but I'm going to equip it and it's going to be within our hospital. And we had that in Connecticut as well as we had in Jacoby Hospital in New York City. So if you can move to the next slide. So this in the end ended up being our personnel distribution. You clearly can see it was widespread among each of the five regions, um, FEMA regions that I've noted. And to the blue under region two, it says 261st. I had to bring in another unit to kind of manage all of um, everything outside of New York City. I became very ingrained in the Javits New York Medical Station for political reasons, um, as well as the New York City hospitals. That's where we call the center of gravity was. So I had to bring in another unit which ended up bringing about 35 individuals that's commanded by a lieutenant colonel. So one rank below me, and he managed everyone outside of New York City. And then I had a colonel, same rank as me, that helped me manage the 10 city hospitals. Um, Just because of the disparity and just um, the requirements were all different. Every hospital does everything differently, um, what their protocols are, their SOPs, and we had to learn all of that. So I really had to break up what our task organization is. We can go to the next slide. So the next three slides I'm going to speak to, this one focuses specifically on the Javits. Once again, slide one, or picture one, we're coming in. Picture two is when the team kind of comes together, small team initially. Picture three is what the Javits look like. So that's what I walked in on. And I said, I'm supposed to run a hospital with that? What's in that? What's the equipment? What are the supplies? Well, Kim, it's non-COVID. It's going to be a um, medical shelter. And we knew that that wasn't what the need was going to be. If you look to the the next picture, which is number four, they said that's going to be what's going to be the layout of all the beds, all the pods, they called it. And that was being done by the engineers. Um, And we knew that how that was set up really didn't facilitate healthcare well. There were no call bells. There were no bathrooms in those pods. There was no oxygen. So think of vent vent patient and having to have the uh, oxygen canisters. And we had to actually change those canisters 11 to 22 times a day, which then takes a soldier having to change that canister because I don't have a wall with oxygen. So these were things that were added to the complexity of caring um, for whether it was going to be a non-COVID or a COVID. So when we were told what we we're going to have to do, which was to set up a 2,500 bed, um, once again, first was non-COVID, um, we looked at what's called level of care. And that's when they said, you're going to be a convalescent care medical shelter tier five. So what equipment then we had to calculate what went with that. We knew once again, we needed more. We, that means there were no ventilators. There was no um, monitoring devices. There was no um, pulsimeters. There was no, uh, think of uh, a nurse's station. There was no uh, automation. There was no uh, medical records. There was no electronic medical records. How am I going to admit someone? How am I going to track them that they came in here? So I took my staff and we went into deep planning and we said, what's the equipment we need? What are the appropriate supplies we need? What are the SOPs we have to write to do this? Um, And here's some of the other things we had to think about. What's going to be the staffing? What's going to be the nurse to patient staffing? Understanding, once again, I don't have bathrooms. 
We have to escort someone to a bathroom. There's a person that has to walk them. I don't have the ability to have oxygen connected to a wall. I have to change out that oxygen every two hours and 11 minutes um, per patient. Um, we had to think about the um, what was going to be the release criteria, the admittance criteria to come into our facility. What's the safety plan? What PPE did we need for our staff, for our fellow patients? What was the marketing to explain what we were doing in our mission? How do I explain that to the city hospitals that they actually bring patients here? And also we had to think about call centers. We had to think about how are families going to talk to, how are patients going to talk to families? We needed iPads. Who's going to bring the iPad to a patient? How are you going to plug in the iPad? There's not plugs throughout that facility. Um, so numerous things that we had to work through, medical maintenance, eating, how they're going to eat, dining facility, nutrition care. What if, what if it's a diabetic and the ability to have then the care that, that that diabetic patient needs? So these are the things that we had to think about, about the staffing, the equipment, and the supply piece. Um, you could see the next picture, which actually shows picture six. That's when in the midst of doing this, we got a call that Jacoby Hospital was actually losing its ability to have um, oxygen and they had to move 36 patients. So I had 15 minutes to bring together individuals that were gonna go back on the back of a ground, on an ambulance, and they were gonna move them outside the city, many of them. So they're moving to Connecticut, um, Rhode Island, things of that nature. So I, we knew our folks were gonna be in a small compartment with COVID-19 patients for a long period of time. So this is one of our head nurses, actually uh, anesthesiologist, uh, nurse anesthetist, going through PPE with them again, making sure they had enough PPE, and they ended up being on the mission for about 36 hours. So now I'm removing that staff from the care that I'm giving there. So I'm setting up a hospital. At the same time, I'm already receiving patients. At the same time, I'm getting these other missions to support the city hospitals. So talk about staffing ratios and talk about them changing and going up and down and knowing your people was really, really important. And then slide picture eight. That was the bane of my existence, the political piece of it. I won't talk politics, but I will tell you, it was interesting to watch between the city and the state. And it was more interesting that when it said, we're going to be COVID and we're going to care for 2,500. Here's a little secret. I only had enough staff to care for 800 patients. And, I, and it was all over the media that we were caring for 2,500. Um, that came out, I was told, Kim, you have 90 minutes to brief a complete plan to once again go from the non-COVID to a COVID and you need to get to 2,500. I wasn't going to grow people out back of the convention center. So really at 90 minutes and you could see that a whiteboard, um, I, I am a planner by nature, so brought my small staff in and we started saying, what does it take once again for equipment? What does it take for people? Because our patient ratios, nursing patient ratios were going to be um, smaller as opposed to being a shelter. Um, the I needed now ventilators. I need proximeters. There were things that we had identified that we needed and then we had to go to health and human services and the state to say, this is what you need to buy. The other secret is I had a complete hospital about 45 minutes away. I, as Department of Defense, can deploy something. I cannot employ it without the city or the state asking for it. So I had it, and I'm telling them I have it. In time, we knew we needed an ICU. So we went from a tier five to a tier one when we were going to see COVID patients. I had an ICU. I had a 248 beds sitting in, uh, 45 minutes away. And the state then said, okay, we're going to pay for that, bring it forward. So we were able to, through our planning um, and what we needed for equipment and personnel be able to show and demonstrate that we needed that capability. So if we can move to the next slide. So how did we go about doing a lot of this? The first thing is we had to build the team. Once again, I grew to a 3,000 person formation. These are individuals I had never met before. I did, had never met 90% of them. I didn't know their backgrounds. I didn't know their skills. They were what we call IRR. They were individuals who no longer were on active duty, but they were called up. Imagine you getting a phone call and saying, I know you haven't served in six years, but you are being called up to come serve. You have 48 hours to report. I had people show up without uniforms. Um, they were leaving their own city hospitals. They were leaving their own facilities, their states. So there was a lot of fear. You know, I know we spoke to the fear. Carol did a great job with that. Tremendous amount of fear. So I had to bring everyone in. We had to brand ourselves. And we branded ourselves as the Silver Dragons. We also do what's called an IPB. 
It's intelligence prep of the battlefield. It's where we research our environment. So as I went in, I researched our environment. What's going on in New York? What are they seeing for patients? We, we, we actually used ACHE and we did a conference call with the city and the uh, public and the private hospitals. And we said, what are your needs? And they said, we need COVID help. We need to decompress our less COVID patients to you so we can take on the higher complexity of patients within our hospital. That's why I knew we were going to have to go to COVID. Um, we learn the politicians. What's the vantage point at each politician? What does the city mayor think vice the governor? And there was a difference. And you had to understand that. Um, and then we worked with uh, emergency managers in the city and at the state level, commissioners, uh, colleagues, um, local hospitals. What's the laws and regulation? When we're deployed, we're under emergency conditions. So I don't have to follow joint commission, but I have to understand what that line is. This is still patient care. It's someone's mom someone's son, someone's daughter that we're taking care of. Um, I'm not going to cover everything because I know I don't have a lot of time. So I'm going to kind of jump down to two points. We had to select leaders and areas of influence. So I had to select individuals that were going to be the face. Healthcare is personal. Healthcare is personal. So they knew the New York City hospitals, if they needed Colonel Brandon Pretlow was their guy that they could call. I was the next person. If it had to do with the Javits, they knew it was Dave Hamilton. If it had to do with outside New York City, they knew that it was Kevin Kelly. We oh, we made it personal, our engagement, um, which was key. We also had to integrate into the healthcare network. So I had to under, understand the city hospitals and how do I integrate? So we actually took our providers, we put them in the city hospitals, we got access to their records and we started screening their patients and said, here's a candidate we could take into our facility that then decomplexes your facility and allows you to take a higher comorbidity patient, something we should not be taking. That was key. And we went from day one seeing 13 patients to in one day, we admitted, think about this, 176 patients. What hospital has admitted 176 patients? And we discharged on that day alone, like 74 patients. There was one door to admit and discharge. So think about that. We're also discharging homeless. Where are they going? We had to have care managers. We had to work with homeless facilities, um, which many of them were closed, but we couldn't put them in the street. So it's a, a lot of things that really tested our endurance. Um, and that's why the intelligence prep of the battlefield, learning who is in that city, what they do so we could partner with them. If we can move to the next slide. And this is going to be my last one. So what were really kind of the lessons learned? Once again, you need to shape your organizational culture. You're bringing a team together, that fear that Carol spoke to. So my husband said, Kim, where are you going? I said, New York, what are you doing? I don't know. When are you coming back? Can't tell you. He goes, Kim, you're going in a COVID environment. You're like my wife. I mean, this was an invisible enemy that no one knew anything about COVID. We're going in. People are going home. I worked every day. Um, I worked on average 20 hours a day for the entire time I was there. There was, I think about a month in, I was taking a half a day off um, just to, because it was just pure exhaustion. So we had to say, we're in this together. We had to bond together. Communicate. Always saying the why we're what we're doing and why we're doing it. Because many of you, I've seen your picture because I looked at your pictures. Some of you are 19, 20 years old. Those were my soldiers, 19 and 20 years old, single mothers, leaving their kids at home, having to call their mom and dad to take care of their kid. They want to know they're going home. They want to know they're going to be safe. So we constantly communicated what we're doing, why we're doing. Clear, reliable. Sometimes we got it right, sometimes we got it wrong, and we got it wrong, we admit we got it wrong, but also active listening. We also built relationship, we built trust. Empathetic was huge. I get yelled at more than any mission I've ever been on, and I've been in for 28 years. Whether it was a city commissioner, CEO of a hospital, we need more, Kim, we need more. You know what? I had to be empathetic. This was their city. I was there to support them. So be empathetic, be honest, be transparent. Did a lot of influencing, persuasion as well. I'm going to influence, i.e. I had those ICUs, intensive care units. I got it 45 minutes away. You just got to pay the bill. And they were like, you know what? No brainer, bring it in. And they paid the bill. Well, theoretically, they'll pay the bill. Who knows? Um, you have to also sometimes be per pervasive. Um, you got to persuade them and you also have to build bridges. Um, there's a lot of um, playing between resources. So you have to build bridges and find a way that you can kind of make everyone happy. Um, talent. 
it's not rank or position Paramount. Sean spoke to how some people had to be relieved. We had to go through that as well. Pick talent. And then I'm just going to end with is that this is fast pace. You have to be prepared to brief something in 90 minutes. Um, to a, I was briefing a three and four star level in 90 minutes in an entire plan. So you have to be flexible, adaptable, and you work for everyone. I had four senior leaders I worked for routinely, but I had 30 feet 35 people I spoke to. So with that, it was uh, a great, next slide is my last slide. Uh, this was kind of fast paced because it was a lot of things that happened. But one thing, it was an honor to serve and work with the New England medical community. I'm from Rhode Island. So it uh, really was an honor. And um, thank you for this opportunity. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Kim. And, and thank you, everybody. Um, so we have about 15 minutes left to our session. So at this point, I'd like to open it up for questions. So if you'd like to use the chat. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again soon.